Today's Bible reading is taken from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 25, which can be found on page 1749 of your Black Bibles. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness, apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? or also for the uncircumcised. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances is credited? Sorry, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he reserved circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Georgie, I wonder if you ever get nervous that you're running late. Sometimes I think that I'm going to run late for church and I wonder if I'll have to race in on my bike as I come in. Um, get running late for church. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about riding a bike. Most of you have probably ridden a bike at some point in your life. You may not be kind of bike riders as a usual thing, but I'm sure most of you at some point in life have ridden a bike. Do you remember what it was like to learn to ride a bike for the first time? It's not easy, is it? 
It was a long time ago that I learned to ride a bike, and to be honest, I don't really remember what was involved in doing it, but over the last few years, I've taught some of my kids how to ride a bike. Now, the theory is, I think, that as the bike starts to wobble, say, to the left, you need to make a small adjustment and steer also to the left. But if you think about it, you're already too late. You've fallen off by the time you've realised you need to steer to the left. So you can't really think about how to ride a bike. You've just got to do it. It's kind of instinctive, isn't it? And if you think about it, you'll fall over. You'll fall off. If you have a tantrum when you're riding your bike, as I've learnt from my little girl Piper, you'll fall off your bike as well. Really, riding a bike is about understanding it. It's about instinctively acting upon it. But you know, once you've learned how to ride a bike, it's, it's very hard to unlearn how to ride it as well, isn't it? You know, they say it's a bit like riding a bike to describe not being able to forget how to do things. And they say that if you reverse the steering on a bike, it becomes impossible to ride that bike. I was going to try and build a bike this morning with reverse steering, um, but time got away from me, so instead I want to show you this concept. If you reverse the steering on your bike, it becomes impossible for you to ride it by using a YouTube clip that we're just going to play a couple of minutes of now. Sit back and have a look at this YouTube clip with me. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill, and I was really proud of it. Everything changed, though, when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses, and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Sandlin. First attempt riding the bicycle. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it. But that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic precession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm. And if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often. But I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're going to try some trick or they're just going to power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. For instance, this guy. I offered him $200 just to ride this bike 10 feet across the stage. 
Everybody thought he could do it. No, 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 no. No, you didn't understand. You didn't understand. So, this way. All right, so. I hope you get the idea. If you want to watch the rest of the video, you can do so this afternoon on YouTube. Now, you might be wondering by now what riding a bike has to do with the book of Romans. I think there were chariots back in Rome in Paul's day, but I think it would be a few thousand years before you see Italians riding around on bikes. But here's the link. The message of Romans is a bit like a bike with the steering reversed. It's counterintuitive. I'm thankful to Andrew Hurd for this observation, for his thinking on this chapter. You see, Romans 4 tells us that our righteousness, that means being declared by God as not guilty, our righteousness has nothing to do with being good people. Instead, it's all to do with having faith in God, faith in Jesus. I want to suggest to you this morning that that is counterintuitive for us because we're so conditioned as people to the idea that to get into heaven or to be part of God's family, well, that's about being good in a particular way. Instinctively, we think that salvation is for those who do the right things, those who pay their taxes and those who are faithful in marriage and those who live according to their means and don't end up bankrupt and those who speak well and those who don't bludge on their jobs and all heaven, we think, is for the good. Now, in Romans, Paul doesn't speak so much about going to heaven. That's not the language that he uses. He instead uses the term righteousness. If you've been with us over the last few times we've looked at the book of Romans, I wonder if you can remember what that word righteousness means. It's It's a big word. I think the best description of righteousness is this. To be righteous means to be found by God who is the judge as not guilty. Righteous means to be found by God as not guilty. And hence it means to be part of God's family destined for heaven and for the new creation. That's what righteousness means. Here's the thing, Romans chapter 4 says, righteousness has nothing to do with being good. There are no good works that we can do so that God will look on us with special favour. We see that really clearly in the verse that we looked at in the kids' talk in verse 5 of chapter 4. Let me just read it to you again. It's on page 1749 of these black Bibles if you want to look at it. Romans chapter 4 verse 5. Paul says this, he says, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. We're going to dig into this verse a bit over this morning, and I hope it will become clear to you why I think this is a counterintuitive message in our world today. It will become clear to you that we need to combat this thinking, this instinct we have to see salvation as being for those who are good. But first, let me just have a look at the language in this, in this verse a little bit. Paul here refers to the person who does not work. He's not here talking about a person who's unemployed. He's not speaking about university students who just trust God for their next meal or for their next beer. What he means here when he speaks of works 
is that Abraham's status comes not through the things that he did, not through his own efforts, not through following the Jewish law like we saw in the kids' talk this morning, but through his faith, through his trust, through his belief in God. And I think this pushes hard against our prevailing wisdom, doesn't it? I think for most of us, even if we've read Romans before, even if we've been in churches for most of our lives, we'll, we, we, might know, we might know what this verse says, but understanding it is a bit different. We might know in our heads it's a bit like having the knowledge to ride a bike, but the understanding of it is a little bit different. I think in part that's because we get so many other messages in our life. So much other reinforcement that righteousness is the result of doing something, working towards something. Romans chapter 4 just flips this on its head. It says, salvation comes not through what we do, but it comes through faith. If you take nothing nothing else away from our time together today, I hope that next time you see a bike, you'll be reminded of this reality. God justifies the ungodly not because they start doing things that outweigh the bad, not because you live a better good life than a bad life. No, God justifies the ungodly through faith in Jesus. If you're following along in our leaflet today, um, I've just covered off on the first point. Righteousness comes through faith and in our world today, my argument is that that is counterintuitive. We're going to see two examples today about this reality, about how people are declared righteous. They're both Old Testament examples, Abraham and David. And then having had a look at these two examples, we're going to take another look at what Paul means when he describes the word faith. What does he mean by faith? But it's been a few weeks since we have looked at the book of Romans, so before we kind of dig further into chapter 4 of Romans, let me just remind you a little of where we have come so far in our walk through the book of Romans. In chapter 1 of this letter to the Roman church, Paul, our author, he sets out his thesis statement. He does that in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he says, "...the gospel brings salvation to all who believe." And after that point, Paul then goes on to show our need, all of us, each one of us, you and me, our need for salvation. Writing to the church in Rome, as Matt reminded us this morning, it was made up of a mix of people. There were those who were ethnically Jewish and those who were not. And Paul systematically shows that both Jews and Gentiles have fallen short of what God requires. He shows us that both Jews and Gentiles alike are in need of the saving grace of God. And in most part, if you were to read through the first three chapters of Romans, which I would encourage you to go and do again, you'll see that they're quite depressing words. If we read it seriously, if we read ourselves into the text, we'll see our failings and our shortcomings and our ugliness. We'll see our sinfulness in those words. If you haven't read Romans chapters 1 to 3 for a while, I'd encourage you to do that, but do so remembering that it it paints a bleak picture of what people are like. Right up until you get to the end of chapter 3, 
And then at the end of chapter 3, finally the good news comes. And the good news is this, that righteousness, being declared not guilty by God, is possible. There is hope. I don't know when the last time was that you messed up. For some of you, you may need to think back months, maybe even years, to think of the time where you got something wrong, where you were sinful. But for the rest of us, it was probably just a few moments ago. When did you last really regret an action or a thought? When that happened, I wonder what your tendency was at that moment. Having failed someone or hurt someone? What did you do? Did you try and make it up to them? Did you go out of your way to rectify the situation? You know, I think it's a, the decent and the natural thing to do, isn't it, when you hurt someone, to go out of your way to rectify the situation. And so it's not surprising then that having read chapters 1 to 3 of Romans, we would try and make ourselves right with God. But remember at this point, the gospel's counterintuitive. Righteousness, being declared not guilty comes not through our own actions. It's nothing that we can work towards. But rather it's through faith. And Paul will go on to show that, that it's always been that way with God. And he does this by using two Old Testament examples. I mentioned them before, Abraham and David. I wonder why you think he chooses Abraham and David as his examples. Why are these two guys? I think it's probably because they are the two biggest names, really, in the whole of the Old Testament, aren't they? Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation, and David was its greatest king. So Paul uses these two examples. Let me read to you verses 1 to 5 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? And I take it that the matter that he's referring to here is this idea of being justified by faith. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Being declared righteous through faith, Paul says, that's not a new thing. It's always been that way. It's been that way since the days of Abraham. It's not a new thing, Paul says. And if you remember back to chapter 1, we saw that then as well with the quote from Habakkuk. God has always related to his people through faith. And Paul's point is that faith and salvation, faith and being declared righteousness, have always been linked in verses 6 to 8, Paul, Paul switches to now look at King David. He's now got the two biggest names in Jewish history in his sights. And, and Paul quotes from Psalm 32. And Paul shows that David too, he understood and he operated on the basis that those who put their trust in God, well, they are the ones whose sins are truly forgiven. And if you know that your sins are truly forgiven, you're counted as blessed it is most fortunate. See, Abraham was justified and declared righteous, as was David, not through their actions, but rather through their faith and their trust in God. 
You should imagine for a minute how counterintuitive this would have been, particularly for the Jews in the Roman church. Paul's saying it's not the keeping of the law. It's not the works that you do that bring about righteousness. I think it must have been pretty hard for the Jewish part of the church. It's also hard for us today, isn't it? It's counterintuitive for us today as well, I think. It's not because it's a new idea for us. The Christian church, when it's been doing the right thing, has said numerous times, we're saved by the grace of God. But just as we saw with riding a bike, knowledge and understanding, they're not always the same thing, are they? I think part of the trouble for us is that we're so conditioned to the idea that being a good person leads to salvation. We hear that message reinforced time and time again in our world. Just do me a quick favour and run a diagnostic test for me. Think through the last time you were convicted personally of an error or a slip or some sort of sinful action. Just think of that in your own mind. You don't need to share it with the person next to you. We're not going to do that this morning. What was your immediate response? What did you say to God? Did you promise to try harder, to do something better? I'll read my Bible more, I'll pray more, I'll go to church every week for a month. In in a sense, that's natural for us, isn't it? But righteousness is found through faith, not through our works. In a few moments, we're going to take a look at what the content of Abraham's faith was. Before we do that, let me just take you as an aside almost to look at verses 9 to 16. Have a look down at those verses. At first blush, they look a little confusing. Don't they? Paul seems to be spending an awful lot of time talking about circumcision. What's he trying to do here? I wonder what you think. I think what Paul's doing is he's addressing the underlying division in the Roman church. Remember that there seems to be this disagreement or this tension between the Jewish part of the church and the Gentile part of the church. And so Paul's essentially making a case here. He's saying... Righteousness comes by faith, not just to the Jewish half of the church, but also to the Gentile part of the church. He's showing us, and let's face it, most of us are Gentiles today, that we too are incorporated into Abraham's family as members of God's covenant community on the basis of our faith in God. To get our heads around this, we need to think back to the story of Abraham. You can read about that story in the early chapters of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. But let me just summarize for you what is going on here. God made a promise to Abraham. His promise was to Abraham, I will make you the father of many. And Abraham trusted that God would do that. It wasn't until later, 17 years later in fact, that God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision as a very physical marker of being Jewish. Now sometimes the order in which you do things makes no difference to the outcome, right? Take for example your morning coffee, it probably doesn't make much difference whether you drink your morning coffee before you eat your breakfast or after or even with it. But sometimes order is hugely important. Think about if you're baking a cake. If you mix up the flour, the sugar, the milk and the butter and you put that into the oven and cook that batter, if you then bring that batter out of the oven and crack an egg over the top of it, well, you haven't made a cake, have you? You've just made a mess. 
You know, in that case, you've got to mix the egg in before you put it into the oven. In that case, order matters. And here, Paul's making an argument based on an order that matters. He's saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him when he trusted God. That was before he got the sign of circumcision, 17 years beforehand. And so Paul is saying it's possible to be declared righteous by God without being circumcised. Many of us are probably very thankful for that. But the significance, of course, runs deeper than a surgical procedure. Abraham was declared righteous before he was given the mark of being Jewish. And that means that he's the father not just of those who are ethnically Jewish, but he's the father of all who put their faith in God. We can give thanks to to God for that because that means that Aussies and Kiwis and South Africans and Chinese and Malaysian and Europe and even American can be declared righteous. It doesn't matter what our ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what works we do. It comes down to one thing. We're justified, we're declared righteous on the basis of our faith. Faith is the basis for us belonging to the covenant people of God. Or put another way, our faith is the means by which we belong to God's great family. And we can read that, really. It says that in verse 16. Have a look at what verse 16 says. It says, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Father of us all. One New Testament commentator puts it this way. He says, Abraham's faith is the sole badge of membership in God's people and that therefore all who share it are justified. That is, they are declared not guilty in God's great courtroom. See the thing? Faith is so critical, isn't it? I'm very thankful for the second half of this chapter because it sets out what Paul means by faith. It shows us the content of Abraham's faith. And I take it what our faith should be like as well. Let me read to you those verses starting at verse 17. It says this, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. What is faith all about? Well, let me show you the first thing. I want you to see that Abraham placed his faith in God. His faith wasn't an arbitrary phenomenon. His faith was placed in God. 
Abraham wasn't betting on the odds here. He wasn't trusting in a gut feeling or kind of acting on a whim. He placed his faith in God, the God who spoke to him, the God who made a promise to him. The same God who speaks to us today through the word that we have in front of us today. I think some of the time we think of faith as kind of being this, this kind of thing like, I have faith that I'll win the lottery, but I don't know, I probably won't really. We have faith that a parking spot will turn up if we hope for it enough. You think of faith sometimes as a bit like wishful thinking. But can you see there's nothing woolly or ethereal or wishful about Abraham's faith? It's faith and trust in a living God. Faith and trust in a living God. Second thing I want you to notice about Abraham's faith is to do with the content of his faith. See, Abraham believed that God is a God who's able to bring life to the dead, and a God who's able to call into being things that were not. Remember that God promised Abraham a family as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he did that even though Abraham was an old man and his wife was also old. Have a look what it says in verse 19. He was about a hundred years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. See, rationally speaking, there is absolutely no way that Abraham and Sarah were going to have children. But Abraham knew of God as a God who gives life and brings into existence that which was not. And Abraham believed that God would be able to do that. I want to suggest that the content of our faith today is very similar as well. We believe in a God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. That's what it says, doesn't it, in verses 24 and 25. Say that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. See, the content of our faith today is that we believe that God is able to give life. The content of our faith today is that through Jesus, we will be raised to life and we will be justified. That's the content of our faith, isn't it? A belief that God will do what he says he will do. I'd like you to also notice how Abraham's faith, it kind of reverses the pattern that we've been seeing in this book. See, earlier in chapter 1, we saw a pattern whereby people had become self-centered, idolatrous. And here in chapter 4, we see Abraham's humility. He trusts God even though he and his wife are essentially broken when it comes to having children. He's a hundred years old. And his wife, Sarah, well, Abraham says her womb is dead. And yet Abraham trusts in the promises of God. Romans chapter 4, I think, is counterintuitive for us today. We're so conditioned to think that salvation or our righteousness comes on the account of living a good life, of doing the right things, of pleasing God in that way, being a good person. We're so used to riding the bike with the handlebar that way round. It goes against our natural instinct to understand that we are declared righteous not on the basis of what we do, not on our friendliness, not on our attendance at church, not on our giving, not on our being good people. The message of Romans is this though, isn't it? We're declared righteous in just the same way that Abraham was through faith in a God who gives life. Let me pray for us. 
Father God, we give you thanks for the story of Abraham and for the way in which it shows how you work as a God. We thank you that you've acted in the world through your son, Jesus. We thank you that he was our substitute. We thank you that you've solved the problem of how we as sinful people can be part of your great family. We ask that in your kindness you would strengthen our faith and grow it in us that we would believe that you're a God who raises the dead to life. Amen. Got a few excellent questions today. Please can I encourage you, if you'd like to ask questions, you're very welcome to do so by texting them in. I know Jeff has started a new tradition about asking questions. We, we might pick that up in a few weeks' time at some point. Um, question today, uh, let me start with this one. Did the Jews of Paul's day believe they were justified by work? Why do they think that? And how do we guard against the works, religion and self-righteousness today? Why do the Jews think that they were justified by works. Well, they had the law, didn't they? They had all their rules and instructions that set them apart as a nation, which uh, purified them, which put them in the right standing with God in a sense. But the Bible teaches us that it was really only through Jesus' death and resurrection that we're made right with God and faith in Jesus. The works of the law, in a sense, pointed towards that. It set uh, the Jewish nation apart from the rest of the world at the time. And Paul tells us that the works of the law really show us that we can't live up to God's expectations, that we need forgiveness. And so that they, you know, they expect, they, they had all that law, they had all that stuff in place uh, that was kind of enforcing their way of living. But in a way, our world is only slightly different today. So much of what we do today, so much of the way in which we live our lives reinforces this false idea that we are saved through being good people. Um, Hopefully that's an answer to one question. Uh, Second question says this, the righteous will live by faith. How does one obtain this faith? And they have a reference there to Ephesians chapter 2. If you'd like to come with me to Ephesians chapter 2, it's on page 1816. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says this, it says, Ephesians chapter 2 on page 1816, chapter, uh, chapter 2 verse 8 says this, It says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. We've been hearing that this morning. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Not by works. That's what we've been reading about in Romans. I think what Paul is adding in his letter to the Ephesians here is that faith itself is a gift given from God. A gift given to help us put our trust and hope in him. How do you know if you've got that gift? Well, this morning, if you are willing to think of Jesus as Lord and Saviour, you have that gift already. That's how we know know whether you have that gift or not. Um, Please uh, keep asking more questions along those lines if you'd like to know. I have one other question here, and that is this question. Does blind faith give us hope? What do you think? Does blind faith give you hope? Is your faith blind? And the question goes on, if we could see, then why do we need faith? That's a good question, isn't it? If we could see, would it still be faith? I'm reminded of the start of Hebrews chapter 11 as I think about this question. And this is what uh, the writer to the Hebrews says. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So faith is not blind in the sense that it's 
confidence in what God is going to do. But they don't see exactly what's coming. I think what the writer to the Hebrews is referring to here in chapter 11 is that the ancients of their faith, they weren't quite sure what was going to happen, but they knew God was going to do something. Right at the end of chapter 11, it says this, since God had planned something better for us so that only together would we be made perfect. And I think what the writer's pointing to here is the new creation, this idea that one day we will be together in the new creation, that God is um, doing these great things in the world. I hope that makes sense. May not. Please come and ask further questions of me a bit later on if you've got them.